Father God, we love you so much. And Lord, I pray that now as we transition from a time of worship into a time of opening your word and, and hearing from it and learning from it, God, I ask as I always do, would you open our minds and would you soften our hearts? Lord, we need you to be working uh, in us in that way in order to grow closer to you, uh, to, to love you more, to pursue you more. Lord, we need you working in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you speak through me? Uh, God, would your words be heard, not mine? God, would you be made glorious, not me? Uh, and God, would, would your people grow in their knowledge and understanding and, and love and joy they have for you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you have a seat? We are continuing in the book of Ephesians, and it is Mother's Day. I want to say happy Mother's Day uh, to, to the moms. I want to say thank you to my wife, uh, the mother of, of our children. She does an incredible job, and, and I'm just so grateful to have her in my life. Uh, now, we are talking about election, predestination, God's sovereign will, which is such a great topic for Mother's Day. And, uh, and I just found out moments ago that Matt Porter stole the joke. It's so good. I mean, it's his joke, but uh, I wish I had thought of it. He said, it's the mother of all doctrines. That's why it's on Mother's Day. I think that's so funny. Uh, anyway, I, I love that they are just a, an hour ahead of us so I can quote Matt on the same passage we're teaching in. This is really handy. Uh, all right, anyway, Ephesians we're in chapter 1, we're in Paul's greeting, and he's laying out for us some incredibly big and heavy things. As I said, we're, we're talking about uh, predestination, election, God's choosing, God's will versus free will, God's sovereignty. These are all terms which kind of go in this basket of uh, election, this, this blessed doctrine, which, which I absolutely love which I find tremendous joy and peace in, and I want to share something of that joy with you this morning. And so I, I just ask that you would go along with me. Now, typically when I bring a sermon to the church, I have foremost in my mind the unbeliever, the non-Christian, uh, the, the seeker, the, uh, the person on the fringe on the outside. I just, God has, has burdened my heart for those who don't yet know Jesus I still remember vividly when I didn't know Jesus. Uh, I became a Christian uh, in my early 20s, and I just remember going from death to life. I remember going from non-Christian to Christian and the joy that that gave, and so I always have the non-Christian in mind. This passage, this sermon, this topic, however, is a little bit more of an internal uh, a little bit more of an internal message. I would say that this is primarily for the Christian and deepening our faith and our understanding in the God whom we have placed our faith in. Uh, so I'm not saying that anybody who's not a Christian should get up and leave or anything like that, but, but I'm inviting you to kind of listen into what I would consider a little bit more of like a family meeting, right? As God's family, we're going to meet, we're going to talk, we're going to discover, we're going to dive in headfirst to this incredible doctrine of God's sovereignty, of God's will, of election, and I just invite you to uh, kind of observe and, and uh, listen in and investigate from, from that angle, and that's totally okay. Sometimes in church we do have to dive a little bit deeper, we have to go into the things that uh, make those of us who are Christians and maybe have been Christians for a long time scratch our heads uh, and, and wonder and ponder and wrestle with what we have believed 
to be true about God. So that's what we're doing this morning. I, I want to start and, and open up just with, with a little piece of my own story. I don't think many of you know uh, much of my story. Uh, so before I met my wonderful and beautiful wife, Brittany, I, I was actually married once before. I got married in my early 20s. I was married for two years and then divorced. Uh, this, this came at a time when I attended church every Sunday, but would later come to find out didn't know who Jesus was. I was at church every Sunday. I was even playing drums on the worship band. Not a Christian. Not a Christian. Maybe some of you can relate with that. I was coming to church. I thought I was doing the thing. I thought, well, as long as I do these things, give a little bit of money, give a little bit of time, attend church, if there's a God, then uh, you know, I'm balancing out the scales here so he will uh, approve of me. Didn't know the gospel, didn't know Jesus. Uh, my, my marriage, uh, if, if you even want to call it that, was, was just full of sin. It was full of a, a lack of wisdom. It was full of, of all kinds of nonsense. Uh, and not Jesus, right? And so we had a, a really rough uh, marriage from day one. Uh, and, and without going into all, all of the details, uh, my, my wife at, at the time was having some extramarital affairs that, that was going on. We're trying to go through some counseling. We're trying to wrestle through this. We're trying to hold it together. And I remember distinctly having a conversation with God. I was in my truck. I can imagine what street I was on, what block I was on. It was one of those moments where I was just beginning to talk to God. And, and my first conversations with him were not... We're not good, uh, not, not, not favorable. And, and I just remember saying, God, if you are real and you let this thing fall apart, I'm done. I'm out. As if I was offering all that much. Oh, no. Who will play drums? Uh, not even that good of a drummer. Uh, so, like, I'm threatening God here, right? God, if you let this thing fall apart, I'm out. And every sin that I have withheld myself from, I'm just going to go headlong into it. If she leaves, you and I are done, and I'm going to pursue whatever seems good to me. Whatever comes to mind, that's what I'm going to do, and I'm done. Well, she did leave. My will was fixed on running from God. I said it audibly. I said it to God's face my will is fixed, she leaves, I'm done. But by God's grace, he imposed his will over my will. My will would have led me into destruction. My will would have led me to ruin. My will would have led me not to joy, but despair. By God's grace, he says, no, that's not good for you. I will take my will, which is bigger, which is wiser, which is going to lead you to joy, and I'm going to Im impose my will over your will because I have something different for you, Brian. And over the course of, of just a couple of months, I went from telling God, if she leaves, I'm gone, to meeting Jesus in reality, to, to becoming a Christian, to, to getting a glimpse of what I had been missing, 
that Christ died for my sins on the cross. I had heard that a million times. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't fully understand that I had sins that needed death for. But I understood the depths of my sin. I understood that Jesus died in my place for my sins. That he was willing to give me his life in exchange for my death. His righteousness in exchange for my sinfulness. And I became a Christian. And then she leaves. And I remember feeling, this is so bizarre. I remember feeling, I mean, it, it was the worst thing I had ever dealt with. The, I mean, I was so torn up. I, I had lost full nights of sleep. I had wept. I, I, I mean, I, I was so crushed that this was falling apart. And yet, in the midst of this divorce, I find Jesus, or rather, he finds me, right? Jesus pulls me out of that situation, pulls me out of my sin, pulls me out of my despair, and gives me joy. And I remember for the first time in my life experiencing a joy that surpasses understanding, experiencing a joy that didn't make any sense. My life was falling apart. This was 2008. Things in business weren't great for some reason, <laughs> right? The value of our house had suddenly dropped below what we paid for it. Like there were issues going on. And I had joy like I had never known before because God had imposed his will over my will and said, I'm not going to let you do that. I love you. I have something better for you. And I began to walk with Jesus. And I came to Outward. I heard, I, you know, and, and the rest is history, right? Got connected to a community group. Had some guys that were, were uh, leading me to the scriptures. I was reading the Bible for the first time in my life. I mean, really exciting stuff. And now here we stand. I, I say this because Romans, Romans 5.8, I'm going to quote so much scripture today because I, 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 just, I feel like we just need to bathe this message in scripture. Uh, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is exactly what I experienced. I was actively sinning. Christ died for me. He saved me. He plucked me out of that sin and set me on a new path. So I, I, I say that, I tell you this story to kind of reveal my cards. For, for me, the doctrine of election and predestination is not a hard one to wrap my head around. I know exactly where I was going apart from God's will. I know exactly where I was going. And I can see the, the blessed mercy of his will superseding my will. One of the things that I love about Outward Church is, is we preach expositionally, which means we take a book of the Bible, we start in verse 1, we start walking our way through uh, verse by verse in the Bible. We do this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, I think none of us on the preaching team are necessarily super creative and want to come up with a new topic every week. So out of pure laziness, uh, expositional teaching is great. Like, what, where did we end last week? We'll take up the next one this week. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, like, by, by teaching verse by verse, we have to face hard passages. And, and it's not the only way to preach. There's great churches, love Jesus, leading people to Christ, who only ever teach on topics, and they, and they find the verses that relate to that topic, and that's what they teach. And that's wonderful. That's great. That's not for us, though. We are going to teach expositionally, with a few exceptions. There's, there's been a couple times we've done topical series here and there, but they are very seldom because... We don't want to be able to avoid the hard things Scripture teaches us. 
We want to be faced with God's word, and we want to, we want to do business with that. We want to wrestle with that. So that's, that's what we come to here. I, I know that election and predestination is, is a hard topic for many of us. I, I want to answer some questions. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to answer some common questions first. I just want to get those out of the way. And then I want to reveal to you the, uh, the joy, the security, the identity, and the worship that we find in this doctrine, okay? Joy, security, identity, and worship. But let me start with some of these common questions. I'm going to kind of cruise through some of these. Uh, and if at any time you want more information on one of these, I would love to have a conversation with you. Uh, it's one of my favorite topics to talk about. Uh, so I would, I would love to go into more detail. But um, first question, isn't election just a Paul thing? I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard this many, many times. Well, election, predestination, that's just something Paul teaches. It's in Ephesians. It's in Paul's other letters. But isn't it just a Paul thing? Short answer, no. Uh, Jesus actually has probably the most compelling argument for election in all of Scripture. Uh, John 6, I, I recommend you read it. John 10 is another chapter where Jesus goes into uh, this topic and, and explains it in more detail. Uh, John 6, 44. Let me jump over there here just real quick. I think I'm spoiling a later point, but that's okay. I, uh, I just can't resist. John 6, 44. Jesus just says it so clearly. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No uncertain words there, right? No one can come to, the, uh, can come to me unless the Father draws him. Uh, Jesus just says it plainly. We, we have another example in, in Revelation 13, 8. Uh, talks about our name being written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. I wasn't around before the foundation of the world, so how did my name get written in that book? That was God. That was God doing that way before the earth was ever created. God is choosing some for life. Uh, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1, 2. Uh, he talks about the foreknowledge of the Father. Proverbs 6 uh, tells us that God created the wicked for the day of trouble, that, that God is, is choosing some for destruction. That's the harder side of this doctrine, right? Uh, Genesis, we, we have many examples. Uh, Moses, um, well, just Moses who wrote Genesis, but Moses was called by a divine act of God's will. He plucked him up out of his situation and told him, you're going to go uh, save my people. Uh, we, we have Pharaoh whom uh, had his heart hardened by God so that God could display his glory. We have Jacob and Esau. Uh, Paul tells us later that, that uh Jacob, God loved, and Esau, he hated. Uh, God chose uh, to bless one of these brothers and not the other. So this is not just a Paul thing. And I mean, uh, Luke, and uh, it, it goes on and on. Um, the election is not a Paul thing. It's a Bible thing. It's throughout all of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all throughout. Next, next question, common question. Isn't God's sovereignty and human responsibility at odds? If God's the one that chooses, how am I held responsible for my choice or lack of choice? Right? That's, that's a reasonable question. Uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, was once asked if he could reconcile the two truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He replied, I wouldn't try. He replied, I never have to reconcile friends. Uh, I've heard it explained that, that, uh, that 
God's sovereignty and human responsibility are like parallel train tracks. They, they go together. It, it's, only, it's only a human thing. It's only our misunderstanding, our limited minds that have trouble reconciling these things. We, we don't find examples of, in, in Scripture, in fact, we, we don't find like long arguments Scripture makes for arguing these two things as being coexistent or one over the other because it's just assumed to be true. Now, the Bible does argue many cases of many things, but this isn't one of them. It just doesn't exist. Uh, Paul says in, in many places, uh, you know, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Do, do we have that one? Can we put that up real quick? Um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We, we have Paul talking frequently about predestination, about God foreknowing, about God choosing, right? All of these things. But it's also Paul, Romans 10, 9, that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of the clearest and most concise statements in all of Scripture on how we achieve salvation says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't that sound like a human choice? Paul, in, in a matter of two chapters, less than two chapters, can say one and the other. He has no problem with this. He sees no conflict, no error. And in fact, it wasn't until the 17th century uh, that, that the tradition of the church started trying to pit these two things against each other. It was understood for many, many centuries that, that these two coexist, that they, uh, that, that they go together, that God does hold us responsible for our decisions, and yet it is God's divine will that is calling some to salvation. Jesus says in, in John 6, oh yeah, this is the point I ruined earlier. Uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And then skip right down. It's almost in the same breath, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus has no issue with these two things coexisting and running parallel to one another. God's sovereign will and human responsibility go together. And I think that where we have a hard time with that, we would, be, we would be better to not say, did God get it wrong? Does the Bible contradict itself? I think in humility, instead, we can approach this and say, have I misunderstood? Isn't that a, a more humble approach to say, how can I, God, help me understand how these two things that seem at first glance to be at odds, help me understand how these two things go together. Let us approach Scripture always in humility, never in pride. That's where we start getting ourselves in trouble. Next question, if, G, I'm sorry, if God chooses who he will, what's the point of evangelism? I've heard the argument put this way, won't Christians who believe in predestination just sit at home and do nothing? If God is choosing who he's going to choose and he's not choosing who he's not going to choose, then what's the point of evangelism? Well, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God has ordained them both. It is by means of evangelism that God has chosen to call his elect. For whatever reason, God takes great joy in inviting us along 
on the journey of evangelism. It is a double blessing. It is a blessing for the person who hears the word of God, who responds to the gospel, who places their faith in Jesus. And it is a blessing for us. It builds up our faith that we get to be the one to have that conversation with them. Romans 10, 13, again, this is Paul. Uh, In fact, I think you will often find throughout church history that the biggest proponents of predestination are also the most like fervent and, and, and passionate evangelists. It takes all the pressure off of us, right? It's not up to me to get that person saved, and if I say the wrong thing, they're doomed to hell forever. All the pressure's removed. I just have to be faithful to God's call on my life and share the gospel, then God is gonna do what he's gonna do. The Holy Spirit does this incredible work in people's heart, and people respond, and it takes all the pressure off of me. And, and I think that's why those who, who put, uh, or who, who uh, kind of ascribe to predestination make such uh, passionate uh, and effective evangelists. But, but Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul, the, the, the very same person here who writes that we are predestined and elect, is the one who says, we got to go preach. We've got to tell people about Jesus because there are elect people out there. And we don't know who they are. We've got to go tell everybody about Jesus by all means possible so that we might save some, right? We need to go forth and preach all the time. And I don't just mean foreign missions. I mean in our workplace, with our employees, with our employers, with our uh, coworkers, with our neighbors, with our family. We need to always be willing and able and ready to declare the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Because God's working on hearts, and he's waiting to use us for our joy in in a part of the process of calling his elect. It's awesome. It's so good. Next question. Um, What about those who are not saved? This is the hard one, right? If God chooses some, that means he doesn't choose others. If God has chosen me for salvation, what does that mean for my dad, who's, who's not a Christian? What does that mean for my sister, my brother? What does that mean for my loved one? This is the hard question. And, and, and I, will say, I will say this, um, the Bible tells us not, not all are saved. Some will come to faith and some won't. But the important thing to remember is that without God imposing his will, we are all unsaved. The option here is is not uh, all saved or some saved, right? The, The option here is no one saved or God saves some. All have gone astray. No one seeks for God. No, not one. The Bible is crystal clear. 
We have inherited sin from Adam. From the moment Adam and Eve plucked the fruit, mankind has been tainted by sin. And for that, we deserve death. God told them clearly, the wages of sin are death. God told them clearly, if you eat of this apple, I tell you, you will die. And they ate it anyway, desiring to be like God, desiring to be their own gods, desiring to choose their own path. Free will leads to death and destruction. We have inherited sin and we participate in sin. Not one person ever in the history of mankind apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord, has been without sin his or her entire life. We have all actively participated in sin. And a single sin disqualifies us from heaven. A single sin, a single act of rebellion disqualifies us from from being in God's presence in heaven forever. We have rightfully earned our place in hell. I know that's harsh. But we have rightfully earned it. Through our actions, through our inheritance, we are all without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, right? But God uh, interposes his will, but God comes along and says, no, that's not how it's going to end for my children. I will choose some for life. It is a blessed mercy. It is grace beyond what any of us deserve that God would even save one. That Jesus, the sinless one, would go to the cross and die in my place. That is unjust. The greatest injustice in the history of mankind is that the perfect spotless one would die on the cross and it's injustice in our favor. God absorbs the injustice. God orchestrates the injustice against himself for our sake, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those who he would choose. So if we understand that and we come back to this question, what about those who are not saved I hope you can understand we are all not saved until God comes along and saves some. And for specific questions about our loved ones, our dear friends who have passed away, I would just say, don't put anybody in heaven or hell, right? We we don't know. That's not our job to determine where a person's heart is at and, and, and what God has done in and through them, even up into the last moment. I've told the story many times of my grandfather, 91 years old. I got to pray with him to receive Christ literally hours before he breathed his last. The thief on the cross next to Jesus, bleeding out, actively bleeding out and dying. Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know what God is doing in people's hearts, even up and through the last minute, so pray. Pray for those that you love. And in fact, I think this doctrine gives us such hope. I have family members that I look at, and I can, I can say with all assurance, if it is up to them to choose God, there is no hope. There are family members of mine that I look at and I say, not gonna happen. I have friends that I have looked at and said, Not going to happen. 
but God being rich in mercy. Right? But the Holy Spirit is powerful, more powerful than our weak uh, and, and, and meager wills. God saves people like that all the time. Remember who Paul was. No wonder Paul is so excited about this doctrine. He was murdering Christians to stop this crazy movement of Jesus followers. He was actively persecuting the church and on his way to another town to arrest Christians, Jesus shows up and says, no, that's not what you're going to do with your life, silly man. Are you, are you crazy? No, no, no. You're going to go preach the gospel. In fact, you're going to be martyred for the faith. You're not going to be the one martyring anyone, right? You're not going to be the one killing. You will be killed. And, and Paul, in, in, in this incredible conversion, ends up, of course, writing a good portion of the New Testament. So when we look at our family members and we think there's no hope there, there is. If it is up to God, there's always hope. That is the greatest hope we have. The greatest hope we have for non-Christians and those especially that would be uh, like fervently opposed to Christianity is that God would impose his will over theirs and we would see them come to know Jesus. I have known several close personal friends, outspoken atheists, who have become Christians. Is that of their doing? Not a chance. Not a chance, and I praise God, because if left to them, they would still be out. But because God is so merciful, they are in. Okay, here's another question. Uh, what if I'm struggling with, or I don't believe in predestination, am I welcome at this church? Absolutely, absolutely. This is a wonderful place to be. We, we don't want anyone to leave this church because they're struggling with this doctrine. We fully know this is a, this is a tough one. We fully know that this is something that, that many of us need to wrestle through. And so this is absolutely a, a church and a place for those who are wrestling with this doctrine. We don't expect everybody to have it figured out. <laughs> if we expected everybody to have it figured out, you wouldn't have a leadership team. I'll just tell you that right now, right? So by God's grace, uh, we, have, we have time and space to figure this stuff out. Okay, next, next question. It, does my belief on election affect my salvation? No. No, the, what you believe about election, God's sovereignty, free will, God's will, does not affect your salvation, not at all. Not at all. It affects your understanding of God. I, I would argue that it affects uh, how you worship God, but it does not change your salvation status. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, with absolute confidence and with no hesitation at all, that the view you take on this question does not determine your salvation. Thank God we are not saved by our understanding of these things, but by our simple, childlike, utter, absolute faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. So if you're struggling with this, that's, that's great. That's okay. It doesn't affect your salvation. Take a deep breath. It's okay. Right? It's good. It's good. And in fact, I, I would even argue, uh, like, we can take peace in this doctrine uh, when we're wrestling with this doctrine. Because uh, if it's God choosing, then if I'm misunderstanding God or having a hard time uh, understanding some of his doctrines, I'm not disqualifying myself because it's not up to me anyway. Right? It's up to God. So you can reject the doctrine and still find peace in it and go, well, maybe I, I hope it's true. Uh, all right. 
If it doesn't affect salvation, if my belief and, and, and my understanding of election does not affect salvation, does it matter at all? I think that's the, the, a natural next question. And, and it's a false logic, it's a false conclusion to come to uh, that only matters of salvation would be significant. It's, it's of great importance because Paul, Paul puts this at the very beginning of his letter. He wants the believers in Ephesus, he wants the Christians in Ephesus to know that God has elected them. Why, why does he want them to know? Because we find our joy in it. Because we find our security in it. Because we find our identity in it. And because we worship out of it. These, these are the conclusions that we come to, which um, brings me to uh, kind of what, what is my, my actual sermon. You're like, oh boy, this is going to be a long one. No, no, I, I promise. This, this part is very short. The questions I thought were, were most important to address, and, and I think take us through uh, the majority of the content. But I do want to explain how our understanding of, of election uh, influences these four aspects, joy, security, identity, and worship. First, joy. Uh, when we understand the hopelessness we have, as I said earlier, when we understand what sin, what position sin puts us in, when we understand that we are so sinful, that our hearts are so corrupted that we don't even have the ability to have faith in God, apart from him coming and stirring up that faith within us as a divine work of the Holy Spirit, when we understand how truly hopeless we are, and then we understand how God has chosen us, how he has saved us, how he has pulled us out of the mire of our sin, that is the place where joy is found. Now, there have been many throughout history uh, devout Calvinists right? Uh, th those that, that are reformed to the core, those that, that love to, to talk about election, and it's all up here. And they are some of the most joyless people I've ever seen. And you go, how is joy found in this doctrine? And I think when, when this doctrine, you, you, you need to know it here, but you need to know it here, right? You need to understand how hopeless you are and how gracious God is to save me from that position. Now I find joy I, I praise God, I thank God that he's, that he's saved me. I, I understand that Jesus died in my place, that, that Jesus died for the ungodly, that God chose me. He chose you. If you feel any stirring, if you are asking the question, well, am I elect? What if I'm not chosen? As soon as you're asking that question, let me just spoil it right now, you're chosen. That, the, the fact that you would ask, am I elect, is a sign that God is moving in your heart already. Absolutely. No, the, I feel like there's this hypothetical situation where, where people say, well, well, what about the person who, who puts their faith in God and follows God, but then they are not one of the elect? It, it's a pointless question to ask, right? It's a hypothetical situation that has never happened, will never happen. No one comes to God unless God has brought him no one comes to God unless God has first moved in his heart and so you don't have to fear that you're going to get before God having chosen to love God and and find that God has not chosen you that's not the way it works if you've chosen to follow God he's already at work he's already chosen you 
It is an evidence of his election. And so we, we need not fear that. Jesus dies for the ungodly. It is a glorious grace, as it says in, in uh, Ephesians 1, verse 6. A glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we find our joy here when we properly understand election and, and God's choosing, and we find security. I'll just say it simply this way. If I got myself in, I can get myself out. Right? If it's me who... who uh, earned this place before God, then it is me who can remove myself. Maybe I haven't believed hard enough or well enough. Maybe that sin I commit. I, I knew a guy, he, he was in a, a small group that I was leading years ago, and, and he had been taught wrongly that, that it was his will that got him in, and he lived in constant fear that he was somehow going to get himself out. Uh, truly tragic. I mean, this guy was so torn up, afraid that he had accidentally done something to find himself outside of, outside of God's grace. And he was all torn up about it. And, and I got to take him here to Ephesians and Romans and show him John chapter 6 and, and show him, no, no, it's not you, it's God who's chosen you and brought you in. Find your security here. And, and this weight was taken off of his shoulders. He doesn't have to fear every day that he's somehow going to find himself outside of God's grace because it wasn't him that found him in God's grace, right? It was God from start to finish. My will is shifting and unstable, but God's will is firm and unwavering. Uh, John, John 6, 39 uh, from that great chapter, Jesus says this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. Right? That I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Jesus is going to tell us plainly. What is God's will? This, this all-powerful, uh, imposing will that will uh, override my will. My shifting and unstable will. Here is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I will raise Him up on the last day. What great security. That our salvation is not based on our will, but God's will. That we are firmly in Jesus' hand, in the Father's hand, as He says in John 10. Man, I could go on and on about the security. I, I could. I, I just don't have time. I could go on and on. We'll talk more about it next week. Okay. Uh, identity, right? Uh, in, in our world, we, we, we have the, the world telling us to, to build our identity on, on all kinds of things, right? And as I was growing up, your identity was, was built on your accomplishments, right? The, the things that you do, the things you're good at, work hard. Uh, you, you don't want to be one of those unaccomplished people, right? So I was pushed really hard in school and, and all the things that I did, work, all of those things, and I find my identity in my accomplishments. Um, now, that's, that seems not to be the case. Uh, today's world says that your identity is, is based in, in your gender, your sexual preference, your race. Uh, it kind of boils your identity down to these, these kinds of things, which I, I think is a, a uh, terrible trap to fall into. Paul, though, tells us that, that both of these things are wrong. 
right? Our identity is not our accomplishments because what happens when we fail to accomplish something we set out to do? We have an identity crisis. Our identity is not based on our gender. Our identity is not based on our race. Our identity is not based on any of these things. Paul tells us, here's your identity. You're chosen by God. You're blessed. You are holy and blameless in Christ. You are loved. You are children whom God has adopted in. He tells us you have purpose. It's all right there in our passage from 4 to 6. That's our identity. It's built first on who God is and then who God says we are. When we, when we understand this, when we understand what God has called us into, what God has elected us for, what God has predestined us for, we find real purpose, real meaning, real identity that cannot be taken away. Real identity. And, and finally, worship. And, and I just want to invite the ushers uh, to start coming forward with the communion. Uh, we might be a little bit light on communion supplies. There's a lot of you this morning. Uh, and so uh, husband and wife may want to split a cracker and a juice. My wife and I do that sometimes. Uh, it's all right. Half a cup still covers you, right? Full cup, half cup, it's all good. Uh, ne- next week we'll go smaller cups. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we're, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you forward in, in just a moment. But when we see that, that I don't earn my salvation, I don't choose God, God chooses me, What's left for me to do? We worship. We thank God. We praise God for what he's done. So at at this point, I think the ushers are in place. I want to just invite you to stand up. Let's come up and and, uh, get the the bread and the juice. Hold on to it. We'll take it together here in just a moment. Communion is an act of worship that we get to participate in every week. We worship God because of what he has done for us. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, God's love is no novelty. His choice is no sudden act. Blessed doctrine. I know of none which, if rightly considered, has a greater tendency to draw out of the intense affection and reverent admiration of human hearts. Did the Lord of glory choose me from before the foundation of the world? Then I choose him with all my heart to be my Lord, my all. Did he love me from of old? Then I will love him with all my soul and all my strength and pray that my heart may be enlarged to love him more. It's well said. I'll give a little more time for the rest of us to get communion and head back to our seats and we'll take this together here soon. Jesus gave us this act uh, during the Last Supper. He gathered his disciples together and he said, when you gather together, 
I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So every week as we get together as a church, we have this bread and this juice which represents Jesus' body and blood. And, and we take these to remember Jesus. We never want to forget what he has done for us. And we know that, that our human hearts are so prone to forget. So let us remember now as we take the bread, remember Jesus' body that was broken on our behalf, broken for our sin. And the juice which represents his blood, we take this together as well, remembering how Jesus bled for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this doctrine. Thank you, Lord, that you choose us when we would not choose you. God, thank you for choosing us, though we are sinners, rebellious, wicked, haters of God, lovers of self. God, you choose us. You save us. You pluck us out of the destruction that we are walking headlong into. And you call us to a much higher purpose, a much higher calling. You call us to be your disciples. You call us to be your children. Lord, I pray that we would worship you out of uh, just great appreciation for what you have done and continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together in song now.